0: Welcome to the Life-Size City Urbanism Podcast. I'm Michael Koval Anderson. When I first wrote this text a few years back, I was in a vacuum-packed tube hurtling through the air high above the Canadian tundra, heading to Edmonton, Alberta, to speak at the Winter Cities Shake-Up Conference. At that point, I was pretty pleased to be vacuum-packed that a few generations of designers and engineers had perfected the technology to allow me to avoid the minus 70 temperature outside the Air Canada Airbus and to sip a coffee while writing this. I remain amazed that it's possible. The wonder of flight. It was a unique and original angle for a conference, this winter city shakeup, Design and urbanism focused on life in winter cities. Loads of events during the three days of the conference well-organized, with a great lineup of speakers. I have been wondering, however, about why conferences like this are necessary. Where have we ended up in the development of our cities and societies that we find it necessary to discuss and inform about life in cities with extreme-ish weather conditions? We're battling a recent development in the context of the history of cities regarding people's perception of weather conditions. My chain of thoughts leading to Edmonton started in Bangkok a few years prior, where I was working on an urbanism project for a client. The project dictated that I was driven all over the city, not only on work-related matters, but also sightseeing, thanks to the fantastic, endless hospitality of our Thai hosts. I also spent a great deal of time outside and taking public transport. I soon noticed a pattern in my host's behavior. The minivan was air-conditioned as are the trains and every damn building you venture into. Every time we entered an air-conditioned space, my hosts would comment on how great it was to be out of the heat, fanning themselves and exhaling through pursed lips in theatrical relief, even after a short 20-meter dash from minivan to building entrance. It was hot in Bangkok, sure, 30, 35 degrees, really muggy. This, however, is not unusual. It's basically been the same weather for the past few, you know, Millennia, at the very least. It is in these weather conditions that the ancestors of my friends in the country were born into and lived their lives in, working, raising families. In the course of a few decades, as air conditioning units became widespread, the heat had become a reluctant antagonist, simply because it was there. People have been conditioned to fear the heat. An inverted meteorological condition affects northern cities like Edmonton and Calgary and many others. There, it is the cold, performing its standard seasonal routine, that has become the boogeyman. I grew up in Calgary, so I know well the icy rage of a prairie winter. From 5th to ninth grade, I commuted by myself to the other side of the city to go to private school, one and a half hours on a combination of buses and trains connected with walking. On many a winter's day, I amused myself by spitting on the plexiglass of bus stops when the temperature was minus 20 or colder watching my saliva freeze solid before it had a chance to ooze down the pain. Real fun childhood. But hey, these are places where radio stations announce, almost with a sense of pride, how long it will take your exposed skin to freeze at certain temperatures. These are places where cars have an electrical cord dangling from the hood because people have to plug in their car at night so the motor block doesn't freeze. At the risk of making myself sound and feel old... I remember how it was growing up in the 70s and the 80s in those winters. I remember playing hockey on outdoor rinks at minus 25, minus 30, simply because there was nothing else to do and I was an average young man with energy to burn. I walked to high school in highly unsuitable footwear. Boat shoes were the thing at that time and socks in boat shoes, man, that was a no-go. I hated hats and on mornings when I washed my hair and didn't have time to dry it, my hair froze to ice on the 20-minute walk to school, which... I kind of thought, was pretty cool. Was I a hard young man? (laughs) No, I was just an average young man in a winter city. I do remember, at the age of nine or so, discovering that the thermostat in our house went up to 30 degrees. It baffled me that my dad had set it to 21. Why 21, when 30 was right there on the dial, reachable, attainable, possible, I kept turning it up to 30 until he figured out it was me and he approached me and gruffly explained the concept of, yeah, heating bills. I was promptly sent back to the put-a-sweater-on culture into which my mother had introduced all of us kids. Maybe my doppelganger in some Thai city at that time was being told, just fan yourself if you're too hot. That suck-it-up buttercup school of parenting is something that I am pleased I experienced and something that my kids have certainly been introduced to. But something has changed. In Bangkok, in Calgary, in Edmonton. I laugh when fellow Copenhageners feel that they have to buy an electric fan during heat waves in the summer when temperatures skyrocket to, yeah, like 29, 30 degrees. But something has changed in Copenhagen too. All over the world. It's the reason that there are now conferences to discuss how to go outdoors in the winter. The reason I have a friend in Finland who is trying to revive the simple idea of pond hockey. Something normal since hockey was invented, but now regarded as an extreme activity. Parents are loath to send their children out into the cold. I decided to give it a name Climaphobia, fear of the weather. Not extreme weather like destructive hurricanes, but just, you know, the stuff that happens outside your home, wherever you happen to live. We have developed into climaphobes. We fear the weather as soon as it ventures out of our narrow comfort zone at either end of the temperature scale. In Denmark, the comfort zone is indeed narrow. After 25 years of living in Copenhagen, I have noticed that the perfect temperature for Danes is 25 degrees. At 23 or 24, oh, they bitch about what a lousy summer it is. At 26 or higher, oh, they gasp theatrically for breath. When the temperature stays above 20 degrees at night, the Danish Meteorological Institute declares it a tropical night. It is rarely accompanied by a happy tone, more of a dire warning. Then you have an entire nation that is paranoid about sweat. Luckily, it's only one nation, the one squeezed awkwardly between Canada and Mexico. It's really the only place I have to listen to people say, I can't ride a bike, I'll sweat. It's another angle for another day about how America is one large population of sweatophobes. There might be a Latin name for the actual condition, but I just couldn't be bothered to look it up. They are literally fearful of their bodies doing one of the things that our bodies do. But these days, it's not worth spending too much time pondering the hows and whys of a certain country. My dad would have been 94 this year. He grew up in Denmark on a farm in northern Jutland. He would wax romantic about the legendary winters that were the norm back then. Thirty-nine, forty, Yeah, that was a winter. Right up until the winter of 41-42, you know? He lived in Calgary since 1953, so the winter temperatures were just a bit chillier than during his childhood. He smiled and chuckled when telling me of this or that cold snap in Calgary every time I called him during the winter. He was almost disappointed when winter days rose above zero. He wasn't a fan of climate change but for more reasons than one. The shrug his generation reserved for adverse weather rubbed off on my generation, but now climophobia has struck. Coupled with our sensationalist media culture, a cold winter storm becomes, oh, a polar vortex. El Nino and his bride La Nina have produced a cull of unruly children, happily named, in order to imprint them on an entertainment-hungry society. I guess nasty hurricanes might deserve a name, but generally the weather has been celebritized. Previously undramatic weather conditions are routinely elevated to the status of reality show stars. These celebrities are always cast as the bad guy. Just look at the hysterical reaction to any storm heading your way. Not the Category 5 hurricanes that's serious. Just the average ones. As a film, Climaphobia. yeah, it would be pretty lame. The protagonist would be a regular person living a regular life, perhaps plagued by less-than-optimal blood circulation, you know, so their feet and fingers were often cold. The gallery of antagonists would hardly strike fear into our hearts. Who is the battle against? Henry Heatwave, Roger Raindrop, Cold Snap Charlie. The hero would arm themselves with battery-operated fans, hair dryers, super umbrellas, depending on which sequel we're watching. Climophobia is a thing because we have spent obscene amounts of energy and money desperately trying to engineer the weather out of our lives, attempting to create an entire world like that tube I was sitting in at 10,000 meters above the prairies. The city of Calgary in Alberta is famous for something they call their skywalk system, or the plus 15, as it was called when I was young, and they started developing it. Calgary's downtown is a forest of ugly tall buildings, typical of many North American cities. The skywalk system connects them with vacuum-packed walkways above the street allowing you to walk in shirt sleeves from A to B on a complicated and not very direct route, without having to put on a coat and go to street level to do whatever it is you need to do. Below these enclosed bridges, cars roll unencumbered by bothersome pedestrians. Edmonton has a network like this as well. Let's face it. The Skywalk concept is a direct product of a car-centric society. Keeping people out of the weather was just an added bonus to keeping the streets clear for cars. It's a dystopian world, man. Sit in your warm house with your car plugged in or standing in a heated garage. There are even remote control devices that start your car from your dining table, letting it run and get warmed up before you make the five meter dash to it. I remember when my dad got one, actually. He was thrilled about it. It was so fun, but it was more the gimmicky value. He liked nothing more than shoveling the walk after a snowstorm and hoping desperately for another one. Then you drive in a vacuum-packed bubble to the downtown core, entering a car park, dashing, what, five meters to the elevator and into the building, where you spend the rest of your day until you retrace your very few physical steps. If Le Capucier were alive, he wouldn't watch porn. He would just Google images of the skywalk to get his kicks. To get your kicks, you have to see the satirical film about the skywalks called Way Downtown, a great companion film to Radiant City, another must-seed mockumentary about Sprawl. Both films are directed by Gary Burns. The downtown cores in Edmonton and Calgary are, like so many other cities, donuts outside of working hours, devoid of life after the workers head home. These cities effectively amputated their street life and replaced it with artificial limbs in the air. Calgary tried to funk it up, man, by making a stretch of one downtown street car-free back in 1970 and renaming it Stephen Avenue. It has never really worked. Parts of it have been handed back to cars, and the street is a poor cousin to so many other pedestrianized streets around the world. It is really hard to mess up a pedestrian street, but Calgary, they managed it. Montreal and Winnipeg built underground shopping malls back in the day, rejecting millennia of street life and opting for enclosed commercial space. To this day, pedestrians cannot cross the street at street level at Winnipeg's most iconic intersection, Portage and Main. Why? Back in the 1970s, the guy built an underground mall and lobbied the city to have the crosswalks removed to force people underground and past the commercial things on offer in his mall on their way on their A to B journey. As I learned when shooting the Life Size City episode in Bangkok, they are adding 600,000 square meters of retail space. It never stops. If you've ever been to Bangkok, you'll know that malls are the primary public space even though the goods inside them are inaccessible to most citizens in a country where the average daily wage is $10 a day. The skywalk system and other concepts like it are simply attempts to put street life and people on a shelf, out of sight, out of mind, out of the damn way. Let's agree from now on that anything with the word sky in it is probably not conducive to city life. Conferences like Winter City Shake-Up are the unsuspecting offspring of society's climophobia. The goal is to get people to enjoy outdoor life, even in the winter. Something Homo sapiens have been doing for, you know, 200 millennia, without ever needing a conference. Now let me just reiterate, it is a cool conference series. And if that's what we need, then I'm all for it. I'm just really frustrated that we need it. But is it enough to merely try and communicate the fact that, hey everybody, winter's okay? And work to inspire citizens to rediscover outdoor winter pleasures? I was using air quotes there, but I also just realized that you can't see them. But especially when their perception has been warped by a generation of vacuum packing? No, it's not enough. It is design and urbanism that must battle the bad guys. Lurking in the wings of our crappy B-film is the kingpin, Eddie Engineering. Like most nemeses, it's really not his fault. He had a bad childhood, growing up in a neighborhood built on last-century engineering traditions the unloved bastard child of Le Corbusier and Robert Moses, in an age where it was thought that engineering alone would save the world, in a region that bought into it more than anywhere else. We are left with one of the greatest challenges facing the modernization of our cities, changing the perception of the citizens, perception of life outside their beloved bubble, perception of how people can transport themselves around cities. Telling is less effective than showing. In the information age, where we are inundated with things to learn, more things than we can ever hope to understand, telling through communication is losing its effectiveness. Showing creates a different conversation. Copenhagen's tradition for pilot projects allows for showing. Once something is on the ground and working, people will discuss it on a much more fruitful level. The conversation is advanced. Look at bike share. Ask the citizens if the city should have bike share and they'll say, uh, no, put it in, Get it working, and then they'll understand. If they're still opposed, at least their opposition is well thought out. Well, generally. Look at all the temporary bike lanes and public space in cities around the world during COVID-19. A fantastic opportunity to show rather than to keep talking until the cows come home. In Copenhagen, 67% of motorists want more bicycle infrastructure. Why? Because we've shown them. If a motorist is sitting at a red light with five cars in front of them and 100 cyclists at the red light on the cycle track next to them, they can see it. They can do the math. If those five schmucks ahead of me were on bikes, I'd be the first car at the red light. They get it. Building bicycle infrastructure for year-round use will show people. Ah, okay, I get it. I still really hate it, but I see how it works. Narrowing car lanes to create space for cycle tracks or public transport ah, uh, okay, I get it, and so on, just get out and do it. Designing facilities that are proven to work and slapping them into place. It's really the only way forward. Just get out and do it, be it pilot projects, pop-up infrastructure, or permanent solutions. A friend of mine, Luc Fernandez, former mayor of the Plateau Borough in Montreal, North America's most densely populated borough, he understood this, and he understood it well. He transformed the neighborhood from his first year in office. Bike lanes, public space, narrowing roads, wider sidewalks, road closures. As he told me, do it fast and leave something green behind. Infrastructure, yes, but also beautification and greening of the city. Skeptics will hate the bike lanes less if there are now trees and plants and benches. If communication is to be used, it shouldn't be in the form of tired old campaigns like Ride a Bike, It's Bike to Work Month, or Save the Planet on Your Bicycle Today. Environmentalism is the greatest marketing flop in the history of Homo sapiens. And most bicycle advocacy, as well as a lot of advocacy for livable cities, is based on the same haughty tone and communication techniques. The same show starts every autumn on social media. Strange conversations begin about how to ride a bike during the winter. Overcomplicated articles appear, all written by avid cyclists who have all the gear, who probably mean well but do little to inspire the 99%. Every autumn, I start posting more photos of people cycling in the winter in Copenhagen on my Instagram, vikingsbiking, hashtag vikingbiking, daily flashcard inspiration, regular people doing a normal thing. Oh, but then you always hear, oh, people won't do that here. Ah, you know what? Yes, they will. Whatever you can think up that people won't do, there are people doing it all over the world in great numbers. Humans will always choose the Designed quickest for way a from a life-sized city first. I call this communicate effectively under second. This urban show is then tell. Take the battle directly to climaphobia, and vacuum pack cities. You've been listening to The Life-Sized City, my podcast about urbanism and urban change. As ever, this episode was produced thanks to red wine and coffee. The music was composed by Phil Creamer. Check out his website at www.hereonout.ca. I'm Michael Koval Anderson. Thanks for listening.